Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today. Um, before we get into the sermon, I want to um, just give the same little plug I gave last week. We have a couple more weeks um, in our, our fundraising goal. Um, we got the uh, matching grant. Um, so we're still about four grand short, a little bit around four grand, I think. I haven't seen the final numbers, but um, we have a couple of weeks to raise about four grand. So I would just encourage you... Um, you know, to give if you want to do that, or, um, you know, if you're part of our community and you've already given, maybe kind of send the word around like we did last year. Um, and, uh, you know, just see if people want to contribute, um, to what we are, are doing here. Um, all the details for that are on the website. I'll put the link, you know, uh, the giving link right here. Um, if you want to read more about it and where the grant comes from and all that stuff. Um, All right, so we're going to be back today into the book of Luke. We finally finished chapter 7 last week. I feel like we were in chapter 7 for, I don't know, five or six months. Not really, but there was a lot of sermons through chapter 7. Today we're going to be in chapter 8, and um, Jesus is going to talk about farming. And um, as as I was studying this, it reminded me of a book I read a few months ago, and I think I may have mentioned it before, but it was called How to Hide an Empire, I think. And it was about the, the United States having an empire, but pretending like we didn't. And a lot of what happened, why we were taking overseas territories and doing stuff, um, had to do with something called guano. I learned all about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I actually was, uh, I didn't look all this back up, but I'm just kind of, so some of these facts may be not exactly right, but um, guano is, I think it's like bat droppings, bird droppings, and uh, farming back in the day. The way it worked was, uh, you know, the soil was not always great. And um, in America, there was actually a big problem because there were certain people, like I think Thomas Jefferson was one of them, who started doing the math. And as they started projecting out um, the growth of our country, which happened pretty quickly, actually, uh, like population-wise, our country exploded early on. Uh, The birth rate was very high. Um, Jefferson started looking, he started doing the math and he realized, man, we're not going to have, the world is going to run out of farmland in like just a few years. There's not going to be enough. The, the ground that we have does not produce enough food to feed what's going to be all these people. And so at some point, somebody figured out that some way you could mix these bat droppings or these bird droppings, they called it guano with, um, the soil somehow, and it changed the chemical makeup. I don't remember exactly how it works, but, um, you know, it makes the soil like the, it fertilizes the soil and things, uh, grow at a much higher yield at a much higher rate. And so what happened was there were all of a sudden these, like this race to capture these islands, uh, mostly in the Pacific, I think, um, that were just these rocks that nobody wanted, except that they were covered in guano. And it actually started, um, uh, hostilities with certain countries in Central America that had a lot of guano islands around them. And um, anyway, so at some point, though, um, some other guy, I don't remember his name because I didn't look it up, but there was another guy who uh, figured out some way to add some chemicals to the soil that would um, uh, make guano obsolete. So all these guys were out there, the whole world's economy was... Um, you know, uh, built around guano. And then this guy comes along and he figures out, actually, we don't need this stuff. We can just do this other thing to the soil. Um, And that guy, I think actually they said was the same dude who invented a lot of the chemicals that were used in gas chambers. And and he's a German chemist and um, 
to uh, in the front lines in World War One. So on the one hand, he basically saved the world from starvation, and on the other hand, he created these weapons of mass destruction. Um, so anyway, so uh, the next thing, so so anyway, the um, the the farming all of a sudden became uh, a lot more. Um, uh, well, I don't know what's the word, easy, I guess. It became easier. And uh, with these chemicals in the soil, you didn't have to travel to the Pacific and get guano and mix it. And, um, so all of a sudden now, though, the world can farm a ton more food. And the next big innovation in farming, I remember reading just, was that a couple months ago or something? I don't know. I saw an article or something about vertical farming where they're building these like centers that are these giant warehouses with the those really bright lamps that grow the food, but they, they layer them like almost like, uh, story, you know, story on top of story of, uh, of different produce and stuff. And we can grow a lot of the food that we need for our grocery stores and for our salads and whatnot. Um, we can grow that stuff in Brooklyn or in Oakland or in San Francisco. Now, if we want, you don't need big, uh, giant farmland. So farming is now all of a sudden becoming very complicated. We've got GPS guiding John Deere tractors. So they cut the lines at the exact, uh, you know, the exact right angle, all that sort of stuff. It's very complicated now. Over time, our farming has become very uh, uh, complicated, very scientific. Uh, back in Jesus's time, though, farming was um, not really that complicated. And uh, it was something that everybody in that day, uh, you know, it was an agricultural society, knew something about, right? Um, and so Jesus takes not the complicated farming that we have, which is all super interesting and really cool. You know, their farming was you scatter seeds and you water it and then things grow, hopefully, right? And so he takes that that simplicity of what farming was and he tells a story today is what we're going to read. And he um, uh, uses that story to teach his disciples some very important truth about what it's like to have a heart inside the kingdom of God. Now, what we're going to do actually today is... Um, originally, I had this whole uh, text. Um, we were going to do 1 through 21 today, but I decided to break that up into two different sermons. Um, so today we're actually going to take verses, uh, what is it, 4 through 15. And then next week, we're going to take the beginning and the end. So we're, we're doing the middle part of this section today, and uh, you'll see why at the end. So let's start here in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people uh, from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. So now Jesus is uh, still, um, we're still in his, uh, the end, towards the end now of his, his ministry in Galilee, which was like the northern part of Israel. But uh, if you remember, we've talked about this. It was also kind of the redneck part of Israel, right? It was the country part. We would think of it as like the deep south or something like that. So he's going around these towns. He's, he's teaching. He's healing. Um, he's teaching in synagogues. He's People are gathering to Jesus. He's becoming very popular to the point now where Pharisees and different leaders are coming to see what he's all about. You know, we read about Simon, the Pharisee, uh, last week. And so um, Jesus now has this big following, this big crowd. He's becoming a celebrity pastor, right? A celebrity teacher. Um, but is the question, though, is everybody in this crowd really a follower of Jesus? Because here's what happens, right? Um, eventually... Uh, Jesus will be, uh, spoiler alert, right? Jesus dies. He's crucified and rises from the dead. And at the end there, there's like 120, I think it is, people just hanging out and that are actually his followers and actually his disciples. So it goes from giant crowds, right, to like a small church. And so how does it go from giant crowds to small church? Well, maybe not everybody there was a genuine, actual follower of Jesus. They were there for some other reason. 
And so today Jesus is going to talk about some of those other reasons, right? What are these, this story he's going to tell is going to kind of cover this. All right. So verse, uh, where are we? Verse five, a sower went out to sow his seed. So this is the parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. So the, the, the parable, right? Um, just real quick, let me recap what a parable is. A parable, uh, it means, um, you know, there's a story with something alongside of it. So it's, it's a, it's like a story with a meaning added to it, like a, like a hidden meaning. And so, um, Jesus uses this parable here about farming because everybody in this culture would have known about farming. They may even been sitting on the edge of a grain field or something. And Jesus looks over there and there's a guy throwing his seed and he says, look, okay. So the, you know, he's telling him, you know, like, uh, look at that guy throwing the seed. Now, let me tell you how this would have worked. The guy would have had, um, a big giant bag of seed kind of on his, like a, like a, laptop messenger bag right on his side and he would walk and he would take handfuls of seed and he would just kind of throw it almost indiscriminately right scattering it across his farm and so the first Jesus is now going to describe um, four different types of soil right that the seed will hit so the first type of soil is the the hard path so between the like rows of where stuff would grow um, there were like hard walking paths if you've ever seen a farm or think of like um uh, my mom's vineyard, you know, has this, you got the grapes and then there's the hard paths. Um, so this is the first type of soil that Jesus describes the hard path. Now, what would happen to the seed if it was thrown onto the hard path? It wouldn't penetrate into the ground. It just, it would sit there on top of, um, on top of the soil. And that would be uh, prime territory for birds to come and just eat the seed. Right, so birds would fly in. Birds in these parables are almost always negative, right? Um, and so birds would come in and uh, they would eat the seed. Okay, now verse 6. The next soil. And some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. So a lot of the soil from what I read about, okay, wait, before I get into all this, let's be real. I don't know anything about farming. I, I spent some time on a farm when I was a kid during the summers, but um, by then it was hardly even a working farm. And let's be real. I grew up in San Francisco and I always make that joke, right? The only thing people grow in San Francisco is something you smoke, uh, you know, uh, in Golden Gate Park um, on 420, right? That's as much farming as happens here in the city. So I don't know a lot about farming, right? Like, uh, but so everything I'm teaching you today is stuff I read about farming. But one of the things I read is that in Israel, a lot of the soil looks really good. Like you can pick up a handful of it and it's like the dark, rich kind of soil that you need to grow stuff. And you think, okay, this is going to be a good place to plant. But if you were to start digging, almost immediately you would hit, um, like a bedrock or uh, you, there's a lot of rocks underneath the soil too. And so um, the soil looks good, but there's no room for the roots to grow. So for the, the wheat or the fruit trees or whatever it is that you're planting, right? They need roots to get down deep to suck up the water uh, from the earth. And these roots can't do that here because there's rock between the water, the water line um, and the plant. And so the plant would start to grow and it would have the initial signs of everything is going really well here, but then all of a sudden the roots would wither up and dry, um, and then the plant on top uh, would would die out. All right, verse 7, the next type of soil. And some fell among the thorns, 
and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Okay, so the thorns, uh, um, or the next type of soil here is the thorns, right? So, or another way to put this would be to say weeds. Uh, there were the, these thorny, kind of weedy plants that, that were all over uh, Israel. And sometimes um, the ground, what would happen is the, the farmer would come along and he would till the ground and he would mix up the soil. And while that happened, a lot of these baby seeds or seeds or little pieces of these weeds would get mixed up in the soil. And he wouldn't even see that it's there. So he would throw his seed down. And then as his seed would grow, so would uh, the thorns with it or the weeds, right? Um would grow in this at the same time. And as that would happen, the weeds would choke. You know, weeds seem to grow faster than the plants we actually want to grow, from what I read. Um, and so uh, it would choke out the, the plant that you were actually trying to grow and it would make your crop useless, right? Um, all right, now the fourth type of soil. Here we go, verse 8. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears, let him hear. So now we have the fourth type of soil. This is the good soil, where the seed goes into the ground. The soil has all the, the nutrients and everything it needs in it to grow. And the seed goes into the ground and the water comes up and, you know, and it's able to grow and, and, and root. And uh, the yield is huge, right? So there's a, if we're growing grain, you plant one seed, a lot of grain grows or grapes or whatever it is that you're growing here. Jesus isn't specific. And so he says, that's how you know, you know, that it was good soil is there's, there's, a, there's a high yield. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear, right? So this, Jesus loves to say this. It's almost like what we say to little kids, right? Put on your listening ears. You know, like, are you paying attention, right? There's, uh, you know, now with our boys, I feel like I say that constantly. Are you listening? Uh, that's kind of what Jesus says. Now, so that's the story, right? We have four types of soil. Jesus says in this very simple parable, right? There's the soil that's the path. There's the soil that's the rocky ground. There's the soil that's the weeds. So three bad soil types of soil. And then we have the good soil, right? The, the, the fourth one. So we have, these, we have these four types of soil. Now, remember, the point of a parable is Jesus is trying to teach something. He's not just saying, hey, I know how farming works, right? What he's trying to do is teach his disciples a lesson. And so uh, his disciples, uh, verse 9, are completely confused by this parable. Uh, and when his disciples asked him, uh, and sorry, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, so his disciples now have to go to him and ask, I wonder if the, the 12 disciples pretended like they knew while Jesus was teaching, if other people were there. Um, and we read, and we didn't read it yet, but at the beginning of eight, there's some women and some other disciples. We'll read about them next week. But So there's this group of people, and then, you know, I, I don't know who asked him, but I wonder if at first a lot of people were pretending to know what it means, know what it meant. You know, you've done that, right? Where you're in a conversation, you have no idea what people are talking about, so you just smile and nod your head. I wonder if that's how it started. And then at some point, somebody realized, oh, man, nobody knows what Jesus is talking about here. We're, we're all sort of confused by this. So they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, could you tell us, like, What's the meaning of the parable? Can you explain it to us? Don't just give us the parable. Give us an explanation too. And verse 10. And he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. All right, so um, I read a whole sermon just on this verse. 
uh, by a guy named D.A. Carson. And we're going to link that in the Version app, and I'll put it on the website too. Um, you really should go listen to that sermon. Um, D.A. Carson is... Uh, he's part of the Gospel Coalition, and he teaches at uh, Trinity. Um, he's one of my favorites. And uh, so let me let me set this up, I guess. Um, the question here is, why does Jesus teach his people in parables, right? Why not just tell them, hey, here's, here's the different types of people, you know, whatever. He's, we'll get to what he's teaching here. Why doesn't he just say it? Why does he teach in these stories? Now, usually we give a few different explanations, right? One is to make his teaching easy to understand, which may be partially true. Um, another, some scholars and different people will say, and I don't buy this, but will say, oh, he teaches this way to make his teaching purposefully vague. So it can kind of mean a lot of things, right? It can be interpreted different ways and uh, depending on the hearer, not on the, the person giving the parable. Um, other people say, well, it's to make his teaching memorable, right? It's easy to remember a story. It's easier to remember a story than a couple of sentences of a systematic theology or a teaching or something like that. Now, Here's the thing. There's one time in the Bible where Jesus actually explains why he teaches in parables. And this is it. This verse is it. This is the only time he says, hey, let me tell you why I teach in parables. And what does he actually say? Well, he basically gives two reasons. The first reason is this, to reveal things. And this is one of Don Carson kind of had these two points. To reveal things hidden in scripture or the mystery, right? So um, in our verse, he says, in our translation, it says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Um, some translations will say to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And when you see that word mysteries or secrets, don't think of Nancy Drew or Sherlock Holmes. What this word means is an unveiling. Um, the Old Testament had a lot of truth in it that um, these truths were not fully understood by the people in Jesus's time. And so when Jesus came, there were a lot of folks who just didn't understand a lot of things about the Old Testament. Um, there were truths that were only partially understood, but then there were also some things in the Old Testament that were only partially revealed. So the beginning of a truth was revealed and the end of the truth is revealed through Jesus. Uh, there's still more to say. And so the first purpose of Jesus's parables is with his own people to reveal those things, right? To, to, to unveil these mysteries and to teach his own followers. So like, I don't, I'll give you an illustration here. I don't need glasses. I have uh, Superman vision, right? The last time, sorry, the last time I had my vision checked was a while ago, but I had crazy, I have crazy good vision, which is not really that helpful, except one of the things it's helpful for is reading sermons. Um, when I'm at a pulpit, I can put my notes kind of far away and I don't have to print them real big. But anyway, um, some folks do need glasses. Most folks need glasses at some point, And I will at some point. I don't know when. Uh, my eyes will deteriorate just like everybody else, but I'll need glasses. But without glasses, right, if you need glasses, and you don't have them on. You look at an object and it's blurry. Now, is the object there? Yeah. Is it clear? Well, yeah, just not to you. And so what happens? And you throw on the glasses and all of a sudden now you can see it. That's the first purpose of Jesus's parables was for his own people who were blinded for various reasons because of sin or because of lack of understanding. These parables take the, these gospel truths from the Old Testament and they make them clear. That's the first purpose of the parables. So they make them clear specifically to Jesus's people. The second reason, though, is because the truth of these parables hardens people's hearts. And this is where most of Don Carson's sermon um, is talks about this point, and he really gets into it. But um, 
what happens here is uh, Jesus quotes here from Isaiah. He quotes this interesting part of Isaiah. And um, it's interesting, too, if you read the parallels in Mark and Matthew, the, the wording uh, is a little more complete. But um, he quotes Isaiah here. Now, let me tell you this story that happened. Isaiah had this big throne room vision and, um, you know, the woe is me from a man of unclean lips, all this stuff. And he's blown away by the glory of God. And then afterwards, God uh, sends, you know, the coal and, and cleans his tongue, cleanses his tongue. And then he says to Isaiah, you know, he says, who's going to go out and spread the gospel for me? And Isaiah kind of um, almost in terror says, I'll go, I'll do this for you, Lord. And then God, at the end of that verse, so I've taught that passage early in Isaiah, like a ton of times. Uh, and uh, at a few different churches. It was one of the passages I, I would go through and talk about the glory of God and how big God is and that sort of stuff. And then the end of the passage, though, I never really get into it. I just say, read the end. It's kind of complicated. We don't have time for that today. It's not the point of the, the sermon. But basically, at the end of that passage, God tells Isaiah, okay, here's your mission. You're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. Uh, to uh, You're going to preach this word to the people of Israel so that it will harden in their hearts. And you're going to have a whole ministry of of um, no success, so that when I judge them, right, uh, it'll be fair, is the idea, right? So uh, that's the passage that Jesus quotes in explaining why he uses parables, because there are people who are not his, right? There are people who are against the kingdom of God, whose mind is so corrupt and so against the things of God, that the, when they hear the truth, right, not just they don't like it. The truth actually hardens their hearts. Jesus picks up this theme too in another place in the book of John where he's talking and he says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That's John eight forty five. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, do you see that? What he doesn't say is, if I tell you the truth, you wouldn't believe me, right? What he says is, because I've told you the truth, you hearing the truth actually makes your heart more hard because you are so opposed to the things of God. It's, it's causal. And so Jesus is saying, these are the two purposes of parables. For my people, right, it helps unveil these mysteries. It helps explain the gospel. But for everybody else who's not a part of the kingdom, it's hard for them to understand, and it hardens their hearts, and they don't see the truth um, in these parables. And so kind of playing on that, then he explains, uh, he explains the parable, verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So the seed is the word of God. This is the key, right? So the, the sower is out there and he's throwing seed uh, and it, it's landing all over the place. And the seed is this gospel teaching. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what it represents. Um, if you remember in interpreting parables, what we have to do is we have to find the points of reference. So what represents what? Um, and then when there's something, we don't want to over interpret the parables, right? You know, so um, we want to keep them to the simple, actual points of reference. So Jesus now is going to give us the, the five points of reference. So the first point of reference is the seed. The seed is the word of God. The, um, it's this gospel teaching. The context here is this whole section where Jesus is traveling around and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's saying, I'm standing in front of these crowds and I'm, I'm throwing the seed out. And some of it is landing on these different kinds of soil. So we know Jesus is the sower through the context, right? Later on, his people uh, in the book of Acts are deputized into this task as well. We are called to also spread the seed of the word of God, but um, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to leave that whole side of it for next week. Um, so the word here is the, the seed. 
sorry, the seed is the word being sown by Jesus. The parable then is all about the different kinds of soil. Uh, the soil we could say is the person who receives the word of God. It's the heart of the person or how do, how does somebody receive the word of God? What kind of heart? And so Jesus explains now the four types of soil. So the first type of soil is the hard soil. This is the person who's not a follower of Jesus in any sense of the word. The one along the paths Verse 12, the one along the paths are those who have heard, and when the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, so um, the the first type of soil is this hard heart. This heart hears the gospel, and it just, it bounces right off. First um, Corinthians one eighteen says this, uh, Paul says this in uh, in Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? So when people who are not um, part of the kingdom of God hear the word of God, hear the gospel story, it, it just, it bounces right off of them. Think about the gospel story. Think about how foolish it really sounds. Uh, we are sinners, right? So not every, the world thinks everybody's basically good on some level. And we say, no, 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 we're sinners to the core, there's nothing you can do about your own sin versus uh, the world system of, um, you know, uh, especially in the West, right? Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and be the best you that you can be. And you need to have high self-esteem and you can achieve your dreams. So the gospel says, no, you stink and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, Jesus is the only answer, right? Only he can do something about it for you. He's the way out, but not through some crushing big, gigantic victory, but through death as a substitute, as the sacrificial lamb, right? He wins by losing. He wins by dying. That's insane. Power through weakness, loving your enemies, right? All of those truths hit people without gospel ears, and it just bounces right off, right? It's the hard soil. It just hits the ground, and then the devil comes and takes the word away. Um, I'll, I'll say on a sidebar, um, before we get into the next couple of soils, this is one of the things I appreciate about living in San Francisco is things here are, um, the lines are drawn. Things are more black and white. Um, generally people here don't pretend to be Christians. Generally, they still do. But for the most part, we don't have giant churches filled with people who aren't real followers of Jesus. Um, uh, um, so when we, we, we know, okay, there are people who are like this. They're, you know, anyway, I just appreciate that. Um, here in San Francisco, people are a little bit more honest about faith and who they are, but that's not completely true. And so the next two, um, so this first person is obviously not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, but, uh, no confession of faith, but the next two types of soil are counterfeit Christians, right? These next two are people who come to church, um, and they sing and they give and they laugh at my hilarious jokes during the sermon. Uh, they do the Christian, the Christian side hug, right? They bring chicken to the potlucks. Uh, they're there. Everybody looks at them for a while and says, okay, that person is a follower of Jesus. The seed has taken root, but deep down, there's still counterfeits, right? So number two is the second type of soil is the shallow soil. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who... When they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a, then in a time of testing, they fall away. Okay, so let me give you one example. So this is the, the shallow Christians, right? If you remember the illustration, the, 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 there's no room because of the rocks underneath the soil. There's no room for the roots to take, to take root. Um, one example of this kind of 
of a follower of Jesus or church person, I'll say not follower of Jesus, this kind of church person is the intellectual Christian, right? These are uh, people who take, who hear the word of God and hear the gospel. And it does take some sort of root, but usually just roots in their minds. And on some level, they make a profession of faith. They may even get started interested, uh, you know, they get interested in learning uh, the things of the Bible. They get really into theology. Um, I met a lot of these folks or people who seemed like this to me, um, they, they get really interested in the finer, finer nuance of theology, but only in their heads. And they could tell you about Greek words and how certain doctrines have been believed over time and about church councils. But when they do, when they tell you about these things, it's almost like they're testing you to see if you understand as much as they do. If you, um, if you believe the same like super nuanced points of Christian theology to see if you're a real Christian. And I meet these people as a pastor because, you know, like sometimes they want to come to church, but they want to test me to see if I'm intellectual like they are. And um, I caught a lot of this when I was younger, um, when I spent time with a lot of um, dispensational folks, right, about, you know, okay, we have these charts of the end times and all this stuff. And um, I've also caught a lot of this in my, my like reformed kind of circles, you know, Acts 29, sometimes we have uh, you know, in the reformed world, uh, we have some of this stuff, right? This is a problem for us too. Um, but here's the deal with these folks, right? The theological knowledge is really interesting, but it's the end game, right? Understanding, uh, you know, what John Calvin said about this or that is the end game. Jesus is not the end game. The real gospel story is not taken deep root in their lives. It sits in their head, but it never reaches their hearts. And they can tell you about the theories of the atonement, but there's no overwhelming joy and there's no weeping uh, after experiencing the forgiveness of the atonement, right? They're nothing like the woman who showed up at the party last time that we read about with Jesus with the outburst of thanksgiving and joy and gratitude with Jesus. There's none of that with them. And so what happens in the life of somebody like this, when the roots are shallow, is um, abstract theological knowledge is not enough to carry you through the testing, the real testing that shows up in life. Eventually something is going to happen. A storm is going to come. And these people will need deep roots that they don't have. And their roots are shallow and the wind blows away their intellectual faith. COVID happens, a spouse dies, a, a, a job is lost, the stock market dips and retirement is ruined, a political party loses, cancer comes, whatever it is, right? These, there's things that people happen and with these shallow roots, they're just going to be blown away with the wind. And it's in these moments that understanding the 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 different theories of the atonement or the different Greek words for love or different perspectives on eschatology, those things don't connect you to the hope of Jesus that you need to weather a storm, right? It's to your faith. That faith is not real. It's shallow. And so the storm hits. What happens is these people walk away from the faith. And so that's the, um, so the first type of soil uh, is the type where the seed never takes root at all, right? These people don't profess to be Christians at all. The, the, the second type is the soil that has the shallow root. So the seed does take some sort of root. The Bible seems interesting to these people or whatever, but they're not genuine followers of Jesus, right? It's only in the mind. Next is the, the third seed, the busy soil, right? Um, verse, where are we? 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear and go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
So one example, uh, you know, this is the faith. I'll say this is the faith that's not alone, right? Remember the illustration. There's the, the weeds grow up with the plant at the same time and with the, the weeds and the wheat and it chokes, uh, it chokes the fruit or the wheat or whatever it is out. So one example of this kind of, of um, uh, faith I read about was um, Tim Keller did a sermon on this one was emotionalism in Christianity. Right is is the busy the busy faith right the the faith that's not alone. Um, in this situation, the seed what happens is it takes root almost past the intellectual part, and it does it gets down deep into the emotions. Now we've already said that faith and emotions go together. We talked about that last week with the woman. We read about the woman, but what happened there was she had a genuine conversion. She genuinely experienced God, and the emotions bubbled up out of her, right? The emotions were the top level of something deeper underneath, right? Faith should never be based on emotions, on emotional experience. It can't be. Um, do you see the difference, what I'm trying to get out here, between faith that leads to emotions and faith that's built on emotions? One of the most foolish things that we have done as a, you know, as a humanity is we let our emotions in our lives drive the bus. Our emotions are so fickle. Right? Our emotions sway and, you know, and when we let our emotions, we let them guide our whole lives. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about being intentional, about what it is in the world that we let form us and shape us and transform us. And I said, nothing is neutral, right? Not advertisements, not TV, not movies, not music, uh, not even the news. Everything around you is trying to form your worldview. And one of the biggest ideas in Western culture that seeps into almost all of those things is the idea that the, our emotions are the pinnacle of what's important in our lives. And this is why we see this in every romantic comedy. Somebody is married or in a relationship or whatever, but true love to them is just a feeling, and that's all it is, a feeling of infatuation. I'm going to change my entire life to follow my one true love, right? This is why one of the only romantic comedies I've ever uh, even mildly enjoyed was the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Um, the movie was about um, a guy from uh, Singapore, a rich guy from Singapore, moves to New York and meets a girl and they fall in love and they go back to Singapore. And um, But the whole drive of the movie is the tension of the guy's family and their Eastern values of uh, you know uh, family and clan clashing with his Western values of your emotions are the most important thing about you. So his Eastern values was, you know, his um, Asian values were telling him one thing and his Western emotional values were telling him another thing. And the whole movie um, is sort of about that struggle. Uh, and, you know, I, anyway, that was, I mean, it's not a good movie, but <laughs> interesting movie. Um, another spot where this emotionalism stuff shows up is in voting, right? We just finished a contentious election. Voting um, there's a lot of political science and psychology studies looks at how people vote. And most of the time what they found, and I was reading about this this week, is um, it's almost people almost never vote on facts, right? They, they, they don't reason things out. Um, people vote, tend to vote through emotions, right? We vote on if we feel a connection to a candidate, right? Look at the last handful of people who've won presidential elections. Uh, like, let's go back to the 2000s, right? To Bush. Uh, Bush, let's take Bush, Obama, and Trump. Um, they all defeated their opponents, not on the wealth of policy and facts, but on the force of personality, right? Bush portrayed himself as the conservative, but the, the every man that you would want to sit down and have a beer with, um, even though he grew up in wealth and, you know, probably with a lot of money. 
Obama portrayed himself then after Bush as the young guy who actually gets it. We've had these old guys running the country forever, and you know he ran against a very old guy and John McCain, and so he portrayed himself almost as like this, like a this, um, uh, you know, finally somebody who who understands Twitter and that sort of stuff, right? Uh, then Trump came along after Obama, and he portrayed himself as the drainer of the swamp and the outsider, and he connected with people who were really sick of the the system and the usual political garbage. And so they all all these all these guys won was because people were voting on emotions, right? Now, side note: Biden, who just won the last election, um, he won connecting one of the things I was reading, he won connecting with emotions, but the, the emotions weren't based on him. They were based on Trump, right? So people still voted with emotions, but instead of the love for Biden and the connection for Biden, they just voted because they hated Trump, right? I think the, the democratic party could have nominated a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and it probably would have won the last election, right? Um, because Trump was such a polarizing figure, right? But the idea is people vote on in something even as important as who's going to run our country, Right? Who's going to make decisions for us in City Hall and uh, in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C.? We still we vote on emotions. We're emotional people. But it's a mistake, I think, for us to be driven to let those emotions drive the bus in church. Now, let's jump to church. I hate how church leaders have taken this, this idea that people are, uh, you know, you know, uh, driven by emotions and abused it. Um, the first guy to do this, or probably not the first guy, but one of the guys that got famous for doing this was a, um, revivalist preacher named Charles Finney. And his whole thing was basically like, I can trick anybody into walking down the aisle by manipulating their emotions. And, uh, you know, I think he was what, like a 18th century kind of guy. And, um, he, he invented the sort of the tent meeting and the revival and the, you know, the, 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 the altar call and all that stuff. Right. And all of it was just manipulation of people's emotion. Um, Billy Graham, right. Came along after him and he was, he used a lot of Charles Finney's methods, except he was a good dude. And, um, later in his life though, Billy Graham was very pessimistic about how many people who made confessions of faith at a Billy Graham crusade were actually saved. And he basically said, I don't think it was very many. Now, if you do the math, Billy Graham's not very many is still more than anybody else in history. Um, you know, he, I, I don't want to rag on Billy Graham, right? He, God used Billy Graham in amazing ways. Um, but a lot of what Billy Graham did was sort of preying on emotions. And a lot of people who made confessions of faith at Billy Graham crusades probably were just emotional at the time. Um, church youth groups. I was a pastor, a youth pastor for a lot of years. I forget how many years, 10 years or something like that. And I used to try to avoid those church camps and big church conferences for youth kids because they're really good at that. You know, they, 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 they shoot the lasers and the fog machines and they play the loud songs and they get the kids all hyped up. And then all of a sudden, boom, they lower everything. And, you know, they try to make it seem all serious. And then they, they do the altar call and they, they, they're, what they're doing is they're not presenting the gospel, right? They're just toying with kids' emotions to try to elicit a response. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've talked about a ton, was, a, um, you know, mid 20th century, uh, preacher, a Welsh preacher, um, but he preached in London. And um, he was, he tells a story where he said he was preaching at this sermon, a sermon one time at a, like a more evangelistic church service. And um, like a, a nighttime service that was meant to kind of present the gospel to unbelievers um, at a time when people would actually show up to something like that. And uh, as he looked up while he was preaching, there was a man in the balcony and the man was very emotional and he was weeping and he was crying. And after the sermon, Lloyd-Jones, after the service, he was standing in the back of the church 
and he was shaking everybody's hands, you know, as they left. And the man came up to him, and uh, the man looked like he was about to say something, and then somebody else butted in and interrupted. So the man went around and just left. Uh, so he took off. The next day, they had another church service, and the man came back, and he found Lloyd-Jones. Uh, um, and he said, uh, he said to him, you know, Dr. Jones, you know, was that Indiana Jones, Dr. Jones? No, he said, Dr. Jones, um, you really missed your chance yesterday, right? If you had some kind of an altar call, um, or if you had invited me to pray some sort of a prayer, I, I would have done it yesterday. And so Lloyd Jones says, okay, let, let's do it right now. Uh, let's talk about this right now. Let's talk about your salvation right now. And the guy says, no, 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 you missed your chance. You should have had me do it last night. I woke up today in the sober light of day, and I, I couldn't believe what an idiot I was being and what had come over me. You know, I, anyway, anyway, I, I've come to my senses now. I don't want to do anything like that. And here was L Lloyd Jones's reply. This is the quote from what he said. He said, my dear friend, as he wrote down telling this story, um, I don't know what happened to you last night, but if it didn't even last 24 hours, it was not the work of the Holy Spirit, the living God. If you want to come to me right now, I'd be very happy to, but uh, I didn't miss anything and you didn't miss anything either, right? What Lloyd-Jones was saying is your, your experience last night was not the Spirit of God. It was just over, overly emotional uh, response to whatever was happening, but the emotions were the base. Now, you see, here's the problem. Uh, emotions and an emotional faith, not emotional faith, emotionalism as a basis for faith can never really fulfill you. There will always be room in your life for other things around. So if this is the kind of faith that you have, um, there's always going to be weeds, uh, you know, growing up around it. Um, emotional responses like this at a worship service, they always fade. And um, if, if not, that's no, that's not true. Emotional responses where that's the only thing that's going on will always fade if that's what your faith is based on, right? These purely emotional responses are not strong enough to guide the soul. They will always make room for other things. And so Jesus says that this kind of faith is, is choked by by three other things, and this is not an exhaustive list, but he says the cares of the world, right? So you're going to be worried about stuff, and um, right, the emotional high can't carry you through the night when you're laying in bed and you're worried about paying your mortgage, or you're worried about your job, or you're worried about your your health or somebody else's health, right? That emotional high can't carry you through those things. Um, he says there's also the desire for riches, the desire for pleasure. So th there, this kind of faith always leaves room for something else to come in and to truly be the Lord. So this seed, it starts to take root, but it's never alone. And as soon as something better comes along, uh, the person walks away and goes to that better thing. You know what? I'm going to chase money. I'm going to chase the pleasures of this world, whatever. So those are the two types of um, kind of counterfeit Christian soil, right? Now we come to, so we have the, the, the soil that's not a believer at all. We have the two kind of almost fake church people. And now we have the fourth type of soil. Verse 15, as, uh, as for that, in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So this is the fourth type of soil, the good soil, right? The word produces fruit. That's the idea. What kind of soil? Um, 
what does he say? What kind of soil is it that produces fruit? What's, what is the good soil? A few things have to happen, right? The soil has to be free of all that other stuff. So it has to be soft enough. It has to be free of rocks and weeds. It has to be deep enough. Um, the seed has to penetrate into the soil and take root um, and uh, for it to grow. Um, this is the real follower of Jesus. This is the real Christian. I would say that this person um, has the word of God and in their heart and the word does uh, a couple of things, right? It does hit the intellect like that first person, but it does more than that. It also hits the emotions like the second person, but it also does more than that. Here we can see that the, the, the gospel penetrates all three of these areas. The intellect, so your your mind, your heart, or the emotions, and the will. Um, on Building on what we said last time, the gospel takes root when the word of God penetrates, right? gets into the whole person, right? Not just one part, but all of it. Um, John Frame, in talking about it, he says this, describing these three things. He says, um, the intellect is the person's ability to think. The will is his capacity to decide. And the emotions are his capacity to feel. Right? The gospel has to get into your entire life, right? into the soil of your entire life. So much shallow and um, uh, inauthentic Christianity um, uses something other than the gospel right, to aim at your intellect or your emotions. Um, but none of that stuff is powerful enough to genuinely change your will, the part of you that makes actual decisions. And so how do you know that the gospel has taken root in your own life? What is the big telltale sign is you look at how you make decisions, right? You look at the pattern of your decision-making. Um, what the gospel does is it, it moves into your life and the process is slow, but it starts to transform you and transform your desires to make you more and more like Christ. Christ. And that shows up in the Bible, what we call fruit, right? The fruit is the things in your life that are happening, uh, that are visible and tangible, uh, that are bubbling up from the inside, from the gospel being um, deep within you, right? So following Jesus doesn't just change the way we think. Following Jesus doesn't just change the way we feel. Following Jesus changes you at the very core. It changes how you think, how you feel, and how you live, right? It changes, it changes the intellect, it changes the heart, the emotions, and it changes the will, right? And so um, that's what the word of God um, has the power to do in your life. But remember too, it's a slow process, right? But it, that that's the process. That's how the word of God gets into the soil of your heart. So next week, what we're going to talk about is how the word of God, uh, we're going to talk about the word of God and how, um, how it uh, works within the church corporately and what it does to us as a group, right? As the people of God. Today though, what I want to focus on, and this is why I split this into two sermons. Today I want to focus on the word of God transforming each of us personally. Now, how does this work? What's the take home here? As I was reading and studying, I was Googling around and I found an outline online of a really bad sermon on this passage. And here's what this, I won't say who preached the bad sermon, but uh, here's the basic outline from this sermon. The idea of the sermon was this, that you need the right kind of soil in your life so that the word of God can grow within you. So he said the first soil was too hard and uh, it needed to be tilled, right? It needed to be, you know, pulled up and turned over. The second type of soil uh, needed to remove the rocks that were underneath it. The third type of soil needed 
to get rid of the weeds. So to get on your hands and knees and take the weeds out. So what this guy said was that gardening is hard work. And uh, in your own life, you need to do the hard work to prepare the soil of your heart for the word of God. So you need to till the soil in your life. You need to remove the rocks. You need to remove the weeds to make room for the word of God to grow. And his exhortation was now go and do the hard work that will let the word of God grow in your heart. Do you see how that completely misses the gospel mark? Right? That takes almost a pharisaical view that you are in control of your life, that you are in control of your salvation and that it all depends on you. Right? But think about this text again. What does Jesus say we have to do to change the soil? What does he say? He doesn't. Right? There's nothing in this passage about how the soil is changed. Right? This passage doesn't tell us... Uh, what we can do to change the soil of our hearts, all it does is describe the different kinds of soil. So how does the soil change? Right? How do we get to the point where we have good soil in our lives? That's the work of God the Trinity. He's the farmer. He's the Holy Spirit who prepares hearts. See, we're fallen and we're sinful. And I say that in almost every sermon. I use that exact phrase. We are fallen and sinful. And what that means is that sin has touched every part of us, every single part of us. Our intellect is not what it's supposed to be because sin has stained it. Our emotions are not what they're supposed to be because of sin. Our our will is broken. <laughs> I was, <laughs> sorry, I was typing this with uh, dictation the other day. So my notes there say our wheel is broken. No, no, no. Our will is broken to the point that we are bent inward because of sin. We do not want Jesus to be the Lord because we want to make decisions about our own life. And so the only way for us out of this, this, uh, this state that we find ourselves is for somebody else to come in outside from, from outside the system to reach in and repair us. Acts 16, 14 is this really interesting story where Paul and Paul's teaching the gospel. And, um, it says this one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods and she was a worshiper of God. So she was a God-fearing woman um, who knew about the Old Testament law. She heard Paul preach the gospel. And this is what it said happened to her. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord fixed her broken heart. He tilled the soil of her hard heart. He removed the rocks, he took out the weeds, and then he planted his word in her heart. And this is what Paul is getting at here in um, 1 Corinthians 3.6, where he's talking about how did the Corinthians come to faith? He says this, look, I planted, we'll talk about how we're deputized, right, to plant soil or seeds as well. He says, I planted, Apollos was the pastor after him, he watered, right, he came along, he helped out, but it was God who gave the growth. Right? God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who, who tills the soil on the hard path and removes the rocks and gets rid of the weeds. Right? Not us. We're not the gardeners. Right? Jesus is the gardener. So what do we do with that then? Right? The answer to this parable as we read this is to not just, like that other guy said, just work hard and then you'll have the right kind of soil. Right? The answer is God is the one who worked hard so that you could have the right kind of soil. And so there's going to be two people that hear this sermon right? Two types of people, people who look at their own life and they see no fruit. They, they say, look, I am not the right kind of soil, right? I don't know. Maybe you're the rocky soil. Maybe you're the hard path. Maybe you're the, the soil with the weeds in it, whatever it is. You're one of these other types of soil. And you say, I don't, I don't think I want to be, 
What do I do? Well, the answer is not suck it up and be better, right? That's not a gospel answer, right? That's a pharisaical moralist answer. So the answer is look to Jesus, ask him. He's the one who gives new hearts. He's the one who fixes soil. And then he's the one who will plant his word in your heart, right? He's the one who can do it. So look to him. So as you spend time reading his word, look for him in it. As you do the reading plan or whatever, right? We look to Jesus, look to the cross, the second type of person who hears this is saying, is going to look at, I look at my life and I do see fruit. So what, what does that person do? Right? Is there nowhere to go? Well, there is. I mean, you know, there's always more fruit to be had. But here's what you do. You thank the Lord who gives the growth. Right? You are not the Pharisees that we read about. We'll read about later in Luke. Right? The one who stands there and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. I thank you that I tithe and... I thank you that I do this and that I am so great and blah, blah. That is so proud, right? That's not the attitude that we have, right? You know, Ephesians 2 basically says, God gives you faith and it's all his doing so that you have nothing to boast about. You have nothing to brag about. So when you see something good in your life, when you see the word of God taking root, you're going to do the reading plan with us as we read through the, the New Testament and the Psalms this year. And... That word is going to take root in your life and slowly fruit is going to bubble up and you're going to see these good things happening around you. The reaction to that is not, ha ha, I have better soil than you. Look at how great I am. Look at all this stuff that's happening to me, you know, that I'm doing, right? The answer is kind of to be like Isaiah and in Isaiah 6 and broken and humbled and basically to be like, I can't believe that God has, has saved me. God has fixed the soil in my life. And so that person, right, who really is like that, what do they look like? What does that person look like? Well, the context of this passage tells us they look exactly like the woman that we read about last week, weeping and tears and overwhelming joy as she's anointing Jesus's feet. She's falling down and she's worshiping him. That's the posture of the heart of somebody who really has had this, um, uh, this kind of soil and this kind of fruit in their lives. And so my prayer for our church, right, is that we would be a people with a lot of folks who have that good soil and who are bearing fruit. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. <clears throat> I mean, you remember those old Batman shows? Um, <clears throat> sorry, those old Batman shows, right? Next time on Batman, same bat time, same bat channel, you know, here's what's going to happen next week. So that's how we're going to end the sermon today, right, with that tie-in. Next week, we're going to talk about what would it look like for a church to have a whole bunch of people who are taking in the word of God and is having the word of God reproduce in their lives. What is that going to do to a church? All right. So um, that's where we'll end today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the farmer. You are the one who fixes the soil, that you are the one who, you know, um, tills the soil and removes the rocks and takes the weeds out. We thank you that you have given us these parables and these stories for us, your people, to, to understand these, these mysteries of how you work, right? These truths about how you work. And we thank you for the, the faith that we have and the fruit that we have. And like Ephesians 2 says, we know that this is all you're doing. It's not, we have nothing to brag about. We're just grateful to be, uh, be on your team, Lord. We're grateful to, to you know, like to stand there and hold the flashlight while you do all the actual work. So we thank you. You're such an amazing God. Amen.